Every week, I prepare for a new episode of this podcast by writing out all of my questions in a Google Doc. Then I invite our executive producer and producer into the file, where they add comments and questions. And then while we're recording the episode, like right now, any one of us can update the document in real time, usually with a note telling me to slow down. This kind of seamless collaboration is exactly what Google was envisioning back in 2006, when it introduced what would later become Google Docs. The company basically wanted to make Microsoft Word in the cloud, meaning you could share files easily and access them from any device. Today, you'll find Google Docs used by companies and schools all over the world. But people are also using Google Docs in ways the company didn't anticipate, as a form of social media, for crowdsourcing, for political organizing, and for union organizing. Some professors have found that students are so used to searching for their Google Docs, they don't even know how to save files in folders. It's safe to say that since its launch, Google Docs has changed the way we write, work, and learn. That's what the company intended. But it's also safe to say that Google Docs has made us really comfortable in the cloud. Maybe too comfortable. This is The Court's Obsession, a podcast that explores the fascinating backstories behind everyday ideas and what they tell us about the global economy. I'm your host, Kira Bindrim. Today, Google Docs, the unexpected tool of the resistance. I'm joined now by Scott Nover, who is a reporter with Quartz covering emerging industries. Scott is based in Michigan. Now, Scott, I want you to tell me what is the weirdest thing you have written in a Google Doc right now. I write everything in Google Docs. I mean, grocery lists, um, my aspirations, the first half a page of 20 different novels that I've never actually continued writing. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure there's something absolutely wild in there. I wonder what percentage of our staff has 10 plus Google Docs that are the beginnings of novels. I know I do. Together, they could make one really great avant-garde book. Yeah, uh, 100 pages total. (laughs) I want to start by sort of taking ourselves back in time. So the year is 2006, which means Disney just bought Pixar. Twitter just launched. The Nintendo Wii just came out. And Google as a search engine is actually only 10 years old at this point. Now, if I'm understanding sort of the history of personal computing correctly, at this point, we tend to be working with software that is either pre-installed on our computers, it was already there when we got the computer, or we are physically going out and buying software and installing it on our computers. Uh, And when it comes to productivity in particular, like word processing, that usually means Microsoft Office. Almost everyone is using Microsoft Office. Then Google comes out with Docs, which is part of what's known as software as a service or SaaS, which I've always loved. So I'm hoping you can start by sort of explaining that shift to me. Sure. So if I bought a computer in 2006, maybe I bought a MacBook, I would also buy a big copy of Microsoft Office, which probably would cost me about $100, $150 for a CD that would go into my CD drive and I would install it. And uh, that was the model for the consumer facing Microsoft Office. And workplaces would get a company subscription to that. What Google did in 2006 was buy a small company called Rightly and make their own version of that. Google Docs is essentially a carbon copy of Microsoft Word. Google Spreadsheets or Google Sheets is basically a carbon copy of Microsoft Excel, Slides, and PowerPoint. They put that on the web for free, and then they also let multiple people 
edit it at the same time. So Google is really like taking Microsoft Office's one-stop shop approach to productivity, pressing copy-paste and putting it online so that it is free for individuals, uh, easily accessible all over the web, and easier to share and collaborate. Exactly. And then they're charging businesses and schools uh, and other organizations a little bit of money to get support for that and get some more storage capacity and better control over Gmail, which is their email product that was pretty young at the time. And yeah, consumers would get it for free and businesses would have to pay a little bit of money. What differentiates Google Docs from Word as it was at that point, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, I think the interactivity is behind all of it. Before Google Docs, you couldn't really collaborate in a meaningful way on a word processing document or spreadsheet. You would write your file and you would save it and you would hope that it actually saved and you would send it over to the next person. Maybe they would send it back with some changes and then you would go like that. And Google Docs really streamlined that process. So it's hard to exactly know what Google's intention was, you know, other than really keeping everyone, you know, using Google products uh, and building new line of revenue. But they effectively changed how, how we work and collaborate in real time. I want to actually go a little bit even further back in time before we go forward, which is we are talking about a world in which people are using word processors on computers, whether it's Google Docs or Microsoft Word, to do their writing. What predated that? What was sort of the, what the lead up to the Microsoft Word world? So word processing actually predates computers. It is a term that was used starting in the 1950s by IBM, who coined it, but it applied to the ways that typewriters would kind of outfit themselves to let users change the you know margins and the way that they typed and you know the introduction of the shift key and capitalization and things like that there were actually a few big word processors before word uh, there was a, a service called electric pencil which dominated the market in the 70s there was word star in the 80s there was word perfect in the late 80s and early 90s but when Microsoft Word uh, was added to Windows in the early 90s, they completely took over the market and have been dominant until, you know, forever, but really weren't even challenged until the introduction of Google Docs in the 2000s. There's a real logic to the shift to software as a service. Like if you're a company, it scales really easily. You're just, it's software. You don't have to mail physical things out to Best Buy. Uh, it's profitable because again, tons of people using it, but it's just software. It brings a lot of people into your ecosystem. So that sort of trajectory for Google makes sense. I want to dig into some of the use cases that are like less expected that I was talking about in the very beginning. What I'm hearing is that Docs is more transparent, it's more collaborative, uh, and it's more accessible, and it's largely free for casual users. So when you think about it like that, you can start to imagine some of the, the things that people could get up to there. But talk me through a few of the examples of how Google Docs is being used today, not for work and writing uh, amateur novels. Sure. I think there's a few really interesting use cases. First, it's kind of a social media for these kids that are going to school using these products. Um, there was a fascinating piece in The Atlantic a few years ago about how kids in schools are using the chat functions on Google Docs to kind of essentially pass notes uh, without you know folding up a post-it and throwing it across the room. Or if they were being watched, they would write in the Google Doc and then delete it in real time and just use it as kind of like a shared notepad. So that's, I think, fascinating. There's also a lot of like 
mass broadcasting that happens on Google Docs for political purposes or other sort of organizing purposes. You can make a Google Doc that is updated in real time and share it with the world. I saw a lot of that after the Black Lives Matter protest last summer in response to the killing of George Floyd. Um, there were a lot of resource documents and kind of calls to action and some other kind of, I, I just saw Google Docs being used in innovative ways to get the word out in at a, kind of a time of crisis when information was changing, where the owners could send out this document and update it in real time educate people based on you know new uh, cases that they were looking at and things to be aware of. It, it was a really powerful tool at the time. And then I've also seen it as a really interesting union organizing space for workers who are trying to collaborate on, on what they want and what they want from their company. The only thing I would say is if you are trying to do that, make sure you're not logged into your workplace's account when you're doing that because that could spell trouble if they have access to that. It reminds me a little bit of, of Twitter, which I mean, we were talking about launched in 2006. And this idea that sort of this text-based tool for social movements could be really powerful because you have scale uh, and you have the ability to be anonymous, which we'll talk a little bit more about. Uh, and you have pretty much easy access if you have an internet connection and that that can be this real force for good, as we saw in like the Arab Spring for Twitter. But also you hand over a lot of privacy and security and, and it can also be a force for bad, as we saw with everything on Twitter since then. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's so much good on the internet and there's so much good that free tools have given us. Um, there's a lot of problems with ad-supported media and social media and, you know, name a social network and they have tons of issues. But the net effect of having a Twitter or a Google Doc, you know, be free is invaluable. And, and I think really democratizing in a way that we don't, that we used to talk a lot about last decade and not so much anymore. After the break, is the productivity tool of the resistance actually secure? One of the things that we keep touching on, both in our positive examples here and in some of you know the negative ones or the ones that expose security issues, is that there are unintended consequences to new technology. So yes, it's amazing that you can access your docs from anywhere and it's free, but there are also all of these other considerations about who else might have access or uh, how your documents could come back to haunt you or literally who will have them after you die. So I'm curious for you as a, as a user of Google Docs and also someone who has been thinking and, and doing research on this, what do you see as some of those big picture uh, questions or consequences that come up as a result of this shift? I think the most consequential thing that Google Docs did, and when I say Google Docs, I mean, you know, Gmail and, and Google Docs and Sheets and this entire suite, it really rapidly accelerated our path to browser-based, always online, cloud-based life and computing. Everything has gone from being, you know, there's that joke in Zoolander about the files are in the computer um, and they're shaking the computer to find it to, you know, it existing in the cloud, which is sounds mysterious. But what you need to know about that is it's not just on your computer. It's on your computer no matter where you access it. And it's in a data storage center somewhere in the world. That is a good thing. And it's a bad thing, you know, depending on security and who has access to it and privacy and maybe advertising, there is just more data that is 
everywhere and accessible everywhere as opposed to files lost in your old iMac or something or Dell. (laughs) More likely to be lost on your old Dell. I want to talk more about the security of what people put into Google Docs, both the security from outsiders or hackers, and then also the security from from Google itself, which, of course, has access to all of these docs. And it it is really a question of, like, how secure is the cloud? But even just saying that question out loud puts me to sleep. So instead, we're going to play a game. Are you ready? Sure. The game is called Rank My Anxiety. I'm going to give you a scenario, a Google Docs scenario, and you are going to tell me if it is unlikely, possible, or very likely. Scenario one, a hacker gets into my Google Docs and finds all of my diary entries, which are full of mean comments about my coworkers. The hacker emails those files to everyone in my contact list. It's totally possible. It mostly depends on your level of personal security. I would say it's most possible through kind of -of run-of-the-mill means, uh, phishing uh, scams and other ways that people can get your password and, and hack into it. Uh, I'm using air quotes that way. Um, so that's probably your, your biggest liability. Uh, and the best way you can kind of protect yourself is uh, also simple, uh, enabling two-factor authentication. So I would say yes, if someone gets access to your account, they could leak whatever, but take some basic steps and lock your, lock your stuff down. That's incorrect, Scott. It is unlikely because I would never, ever write mean things about my coworkers in my diary. I meant you broadly. Okay. (laughs) Okay, scenario two. I keep my grocery list in Google Docs, as we do, and I have decided I want to get really into making pies. So I copy down 15 different pie recipes, and soon enough, I start seeing ads all over the internet, all over Chrome, for pie crusts and pie filling. I love the conspiracy behind it. This is complicated. I would say it's pretty unlikely at this point that if the only place in the world that you've put that information is Google Docs, that it shows up in your ads. But let's dig into this for a second. So it used to be if there was anything in your email, in your Gmail account, Google was using that for advertising. They've said that they stopped that practice in 2017. I'm not sure if they were ever digging into Google Docs to to do that and to sell information. Now, I would say if you are writing a list about pies, you've probably also Googled pies at some point or recipes, and that is how you're seeing those ads because Google owns an entire ecosystem. They own the search, they own the advertising network. They don't need to look at your recipe in Google Docs. They have other means. So only if I am copying pie recipes out of a pie recipe book into Google Docs. Am I if safe? you've never thought about pies before and that's the first time, then I think you're probably good. Okay, scenario three. I am a middle school student who received a free Chromebook from my school during the pandemic. And if you're not familiar, a Chromebook is a laptop that runs basically the Google suite and just that. So you can just use all the Google stuff through the internet. Even though school is back in person and I'm not happy about it, I get to keep my Chromebook, which is exciting. And in my Google Docs, my friends and I have a file where we write about all of the teachers we hate. The school finds the document and we all get detention. That's very likely. Depending on how sophisticated your school administrator is, just as a general rule, the administrator of a company or school's Google account that they're paying for, I would assume that they have access to anything in there uh, that includes your emails and your documents and things like that. That's why I said before, with union organizing, 
you know, be careful. Kids, I hope you're listening. Don't write your bone books in, in school-sponsored Google Docs. All of our high school listeners. <laughs> All right, scenario four. A spreadsheet circulates inviting people in the media to anonymously submit stories of workplace sexual harassment, including accusing other people in the media by name. In this scenario, I add my own story to the spreadsheet and I name the person who harassed me. Now, years later, there is a defamation lawsuit and I am liable for what I wrote anonymously in this document. This is complicated. So you're probably okay. U.S. citizens have um, protected speech rights, even when they're anonymous. But there are certain circumstances in which Google could be subpoenaed to, quote unquote, unmask the person who is speaking anonymously. So it's not completely guaranteed under every judicial interpretation that, you know, you will stay anonymous forever. So there is some risk. And then your liability for defamation really depends on a couple things. Is what you said true or false? It's not defamation if it's true. It, then it also kind of depends on how famous the person is that you are quote unquote defaming. So I don't want to get too into like media law here, but you're probably okay. But know that nothing is always guaranteed to be anonymous forever. And there are lots of powerful people who would love to kind of unmask their critics in a court of law. And that has happened before. Well, I was going to say, this one is actually pretty close to a real world example. Do you want to tell us a little more about that? I think what happened with the shitty media men list is that the creator of the document was sued, uh, Moira Donegan, who kind of revealed herself. I think that's what happened. So I think it's, it's slightly different, but... Um, so the anonymous part of it is not here because she identified herself publicly. But yeah, the shitty media men list was a really innovative kind of way to organize and to kind of tell people who the quote unquote bad actors were in the media industry that were abusing people. Yeah, to go back to some of our, our political organizing examples, we've also written about how Google Docs has been used in Hong Kong to help people organize um, resistance movements. And we're certainly seeing now that um, if you were a person who ran a Google Doc that was a tool for the resistance, that like, from the Chinese government's perspective, you could be getting in trouble for that. Um, but also that it's used as a tool for resistance. I will say lawyers do not like Google Docs because it is auto-saving a million different copies of something. So they, they much prefer Word documents where you can have something and then save and then have another copy if you need it. But Redline it. Redline it. Okay, last scenario. I am 100 years old and I have been keeping a series of letters to my descendants in Google Docs. One night at 100 years old, I pass away peacefully in my sleep. And the next day, my great-grandchildren are able to show everyone how to read my memoirs, which I have titled Revision History in a, a little nod to Google Docs. And they're all amazed by how insightful I am and they miss me so much. Likely? Unlikely? What do you think? Well, first of all, rest in peace. Thank you so much. Congrats on 100, though. <laughs> um, it's very likely, but you need to have been savvy enough to think of that ahead of time. I think this is so fascinating. There's tons of tools right now to kind of make sure that your quote unquote digital legacy lives on. And people think a lot about wills and about, you know, what they're passing on and their, their you know, furniture and their jewelry and their car and other kind of real life things, but not so much about their online life. 
And so a lot of people pass away and don't think about what happens to something that might be in their email if their loved one can't access it. Luckily, there is a way to to set this up. And I just did it yesterday, actually. So you can go into your settings in Google and, you know, click on something that says make a plan for your digital legacy. And then you can select a person. I put in my fiance's email address and her phone number and God forbid I die, uh, she will have access to my Gmail account and my documents and all of that good stuff. It's incredibly morbid, but it's actually really important to think about these things. Uh, Facebook has a tool to do something similar. A lot of social media companies, a lot of internet companies have tools to kind of plan for the worst case scenario or the inevitable, you know, however morbid you want to get but it's super important that is so interesting i did not who in my life will i bestow this honor on or burden honor to read all of my diary entries and have started novels me <laughs> i mean maybe you don't think highly of your internet life and you really don't want your loved ones to see and you can also set your gmail to self-destruct that i was going to ask that i would like that option yeah. you can do that um, you can say, I don't want anyone in there and I want this to poof, go away. And you should do that in advance because fun fact, the dead have no privacy rights. I also think it would be fun to write a will in Google Docs where you just list out all of your belongings and then have people come in and like comment on what they want or, you know, have some back and forth. That could be nefarious though with, um, you know, people deleting things and then. It's true. Yes. Well, revision history, Scott, it's all transparent. I would know. I would know. I think you're onto something. Thank you for playing Rank My Anxiety. Do you think there are any ramifications of how dependent we are on Google for these services? I mean, on the one hand, we were just as dependent on Microsoft Office, and certainly they went to court over our dependence on them as a singular company. Um, but now that's true for Google, and we see that elsewhere in the, in the tech world. There was an Amazon Web Services outage that took down massive parts of the internet, including our courts' ability to send email. And it just reminded all of us uh, that we are so dependent on these companies to run our lives and our work. I was thinking about this today. I was wondering if you could be on the internet and avoid Microsoft. And the answer, I think, is probably. And that's incredible because Microsoft is one of the biggest companies in the world uh, still. But Google is almost unavoidable. And that is really part of the net effect of Google Docs and moving all of this word processing onto the browser is you can live entirely in Google's ecosystem. You can boot up Chrome, which is now the number one web browser by market share. You can use Google search. You can get ads that are powered by Google. You can be on websites that are hosted on Google's cloud services. You can uh, use Google Docs. You can use Google Sheets. You know, it is pretty unavoidable. And I think that that has huge ramifications in terms of who controls the Internet and who controls your experience and just the number of different monopolies that they have in the Internet space is, is something that I don't think that we as a society or the United States as a regulatory power really have the tools to grapple with. What do you think could kill Google Docs? That's a really good question. I don't know. I think that the market is dominated by these two products, Microsoft Word and Google Docs, that are identical. I mean, there's very little difference. I think PowerPoint is just a better product than Slides, but the other two are basically the same thing. 
So I don't know. I think if anything could quote unquote kill them, it would be something that looks very different and is not a carbon copy of the same exact software. But we haven't really seen that. I have one last question for you, Scott. What is your favorite fun fact about Google Docs or just something really interesting that we didn't have time to get to today? All right. This is super practical and it always blows people's minds when they don't know it. If you're on Chrome, you can start a new document just by typing doc.new, N-E-W. If you go to your Chrome browser and type doc.new, it will open a new document. You can open Sheets the same way, sheets.new will open a new Google Sheet, slides.new. That's crazy. Yeah. It always blows people's minds. I think the older you get, it's hard to adapt shortcuts. You're just like, well, this is how I've done it. I open the tab. I start a new document. But no, I will do it now. I mean, when you have the the neural chip from Black Mirror, you'll be able to rewind your memories and <laughs> remember better. Thanks for joining me, Scott. This was a great combo. Thanks for having me. That's our obsession for the week. This episode was produced by Katie Jane Fernelius. Our sound engineer is George Drake, and our executive producer is Alex Osula. The theme music is by Taka Yazuzawa and Alex Sukira. Special thanks to Scott Nover in Michigan. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Tell your friends about us. Start a shared Google Doc about your favorite episodes. Then head to qz.com obsession to sign up for Quartz's weekly obsession email and browse hundreds of interesting backstories. Thank you.